0: See everybody out. So, John chapter 11 that Greg just read for us was a passage we were going through in our windy study maybe about a month or so back. And we were having a pretty good discussion about really the humanity of Jesus. And I can't remember if I said it up here, or if I said it in the class, I don't know where in the world I've said it because it's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately. But when we see this story of Jesus in John chapter 11, I think we finally get a better feeling of Jesus as a human being besides just in the garden. Because most of us, we can't relate as closely to Jesus in the garden as we can to seeing our loved ones lost. And I think I have mentioned that before. And you notice that in John chapter 11, if you're still there, that in verse 33... When Jesus saw her, that is, Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His Spirit, and He was troubled. Remember how we talked about when you see somebody crying, that's a little differently than when you are handling it yourself. And so like I've said before, when I see my mother crying, that's kind of the end of it. It doesn't matter how tough I am, I'm probably going to in that instance. Jesus apparently is very similar. And the people look at Him and they say, man, look how He loved him," And they think He's thinking of only His friend Lazarus. And I think He's thinking more for His family and for Lazarus as well as we've talked a lot about that in that class. But here's where, here's where I'm going with this. This is not the only instance in the Bible where we learn that God has feelings too. See, flat out, God really feels very similarly to us in the things that go on in our lives, especially as a group of His people. And I want to see that tonight from Judges, the 10th chapter. I want you to flip over to Judges, chapter 10. We're going to spend the majority of our time, if not all of our time tonight, in Judges 10 and 11. Before we get into Judges chapter 11, I want you to see verse 16 of Judges chapter 10. And here's the phrase So they put away their foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Or if you're using the King James, and I think the King James, he was grieved to his soul over the misery of Israel. That is where I'm getting this title, God has feelings too, that what was going on was a lot for him to deal with. And so I want to begin tonight by painting the situation, the scenario, that got God to feel... This feeling which we will talk more about. So go back to verse 6 here of Judges, the 10th chapter. What well, I want you to see, even before we get into that, as I have forgotten, is a map up here. In the map up here, we have the land of Canaan. And uh, my laser, I can never remember how to use it. So, All right, well, I... Toss it. no, don't, don't worry about it. But it's up there. You can see Canaan. We know north, south, east, and west, right? I think Beth teaches that to kindergartners, that you've got to know your direction. So I'm hoping everyone knows north, south, east, and west without having to have a laser pointer uh, on that. So we got Canaan kind of dead center there. We have to the north in Damascus, you have a nation called Syria. You have to the west of that, along the Mediterranean Sea, you have the city Tiger up there that belongs to the region of Sidon, okay, you have to the east of Canaan, you don't have anything mentioned there, but you're going to have the land of Gilead, it would be known in the days of the Judges, that would be where some of the half-tribe of Manassas, uh, Manasseh was, and so on and so forth, and you would have over there, the Ammonites would have dwelt in that part, and Edomites, and others would have been over to the east of Canaan. And then down there near Beersheba, you would have where the Philistines would have been. So if you're looking south and west, down in that general area, you would have had the Philistines. So like where Goliath was from, just a little bit north of that. The reason I point all of that out is because of verse 6 of Judges chapter 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. What we have happening in Judges chapter 10 is the people of Israel, they have accepted every God around them, and they have forsaken their own God. They had taken all these different groups of gods. They had taken the bells that we normally think of. Uh, these fertility gods. And the same thing with Gasteroth. Maybe the stars. Uh, or maybe it's a god out of Sidon. But they had taken that. They had taken the gods of Syria, of Damascus. They had taken the gods of Sidon there out of Tyre. And from their mountains, they had taken these gods of Moab so off to the east of the Jordan River. They were taken from the Ammonites. They're taking everybody's gods, including the Philistines, except their own. I noticed they had to leave their gods. Wasn't that one of the big reasons why when they took over the land they were supposed to drive all the nations out? Wasn't that a big reason why when they went into the land they weren't to intermarry with the people? Is because you would start being like everybody else around. And so what you have is again, they went after these gods. Because we know from our study of Judges, right, that they constantly would go after other gods, they would repent, and then they would go back to the other gods, they would repent, they would go back, and it was just a vicious cycle, we said. Well, it seems to be one of the worst cycles that we have here in Judges chapter 10. So he goes on, they forsake him. And so you'll not be surprised, verse 7, to find out that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God was very angry. I like the King James there. He's wroth. It just paints a picture, doesn't it? Somebody who is fuming, they are boiling hot because they've been left. I want you to think about maybe for a second. What had they done with all of these gods that were around they had given what had belonged to Him to them. The rain, the fertility, the victories, the salvation, the fruits, the plants. Everything they were giving to the other gods. So have you ever done something, achieved something, and somebody else got the credit for? How does that make you feel? Wrath. Maybe if it only happens one time, maybe you say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, right? But it keeps happening over and over and over again to the point where I think we all would lose it. We all would be so fed up with you giving them my service. You're supposed to be serving me. You're supposed to be doing what I said to do, but yet, you're after them. You're not giving me my glory that I am the only God there is. You're saying all of these gods are equal, if not greater than me. And i made all of this stuff. And yet, you're going to worship the sun, the moon, the plants, all of these things. You're not giving that to me. Or you're not giving me The honor that I deserve, I have God. The respect that we saw this morning. You disregard anything that comes from His mouth. And isn't that the judges? Each man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. You did what you want to do, so you don't honor anybody. You don't care about anybody else's opinion except for yourself. And God is looking down at His people that He had entered a covenant with and he is mad because they've given his glory, his honor, his service to all of these other nations around him. So what do you do when somebody takes that credit from you? You get them, don't you? You make sure that you get what is yours. And So God says, I'll make sure that you guys know who's in control here. So notice, pick back up with me in verse 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. I wish I understood that phrase a little better, He sold them. Because in some places it will say He gave them over to them or He delivered them. This seems to me to be a little bit stronger in that He sold them. He got something in return for this. And... I think what He got in return is what we would see in Exodus 30 that He would take delight or not Exodus 30, Deuteronomy 30 He would take delight in punishing them. And we'll look at that passage maybe here in a moment. But God sold them into the hand of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So these people that they have taken their gods on He's letting them defeat them. Which would say what about their gods? It would say your gods... Don't love me. Your gods don't like me. Your gods are against me. You've turned on me, right? And so they do this. And notice how bad it was. Consider verse 8 there. They crushed and they oppressed the people of Israel that year. I, I was thinking about Mills this morning. Crushed. The stress that goes along with anxiety of not knowing the outcome of something you ever been put through the, quote, ringer? Where you're just always getting... You, you're not in control whatsoever. You're just kind of going through and you're getting squashed day after day after day. And so what was happening were these nations, they were coming across the river and they were taking Israel. They were fighting them in battle. They would fight them on Gilead. They would take them. They would tax them. They would do all these things to the point where the people were just wore out. And we might say they were defeated. And we understand that, right? Strong shoulders. What was once strong and mighty is now weak and feeble because the Lord sold them. He said, you Philistines, you Ammonites, you go ahead and you take my people. They don't want me. Go your own way. And so this was awful for them. They were all crushed. They were all oppressed. And so you would see at the end of verse 9 that Israel was severely distressed. This was not a light reckoning that the Lord was bringing on these people. This was a very severe punishment, a very severe justice that He was bringing upon them because of His anger. How long did this go on? Verse 8. 18 years. So what happens 18 years later? I'm trying to think. Anybody in the uh, Tyler's the closest we got to 18 years. He's like 20 years old. So almost... He's 8, Tyler's 18. So all of Tyler's lifetime back there. So Greg Stacy, I'm sure you can understand 18 years pretty well. Because that's all of his lifetime. That's more than Evan's lifetime. More than Ashley's. Ashley's 16. We're talking a long period of time people are just getting down. 18 years later, look what they finally do, verse 10. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Why did it take 18 years? Wouldn't you think if you're getting beat up for 4, 5, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, wouldn't you think somewhere along the way, before 18 years, you would be like, man, enough's enough. I've got to get back to the only one that has ever given me peace. But no, that's how far gone they were. They were that far out of it that for 18 years God was an afterthought to them. I imagine they went after all these things. So Oh, the gods of the Ammonites did not working now, so let me go check out the ones over here inside. Oh, he's not working for me anymore, so let me go check out the ones here. And it's just always back and forth. You know people like that? It's more like a superstition to them. This is working for me right now, so that's all good. Okay, this one isn't working, so I'm going to go over here and I'm going to try this. I think we try that sometimes in our religious life. And we're like, we forget about God 18 years later. I think we can also understand something a little more, can't we? You no, know, we think about that prodigal son, right? How long was he gone? The story doesn't tell us how long he was gone, does it? I've never really thought about the time frame of how long the prodigal son was gone until I was thinking about this 18 years later. I wonder if it took him 18 years. I wonder if it took him a short amount of time. I always get the impression he was relatively short. He found himself eating with those pigs after all his money was gone. He's like, man, what if I do with this? Maybe that was six months. Maybe that was five years. Maybe that was 15. Maybe that was long. Story doesn't tell us, right? It's a parable. But however long it takes, how's God feeling during those 18 years with each and every day that He is not getting what He deserves and someone else is? I think with each and every day, you think less and less that they will ever come back. So maybe you've had someone leave you. Maybe it was back in your dating days and they left you and you every little day after you break up, say, maybe we'll get back together. Maybe we'll get back together. And finally enough time passes and it's complete afterthought. It's not going to happen. I wonder what's going through God's head and all of this. But eighteen years later, they finally remember the Lord. And they say, We've sinned, as you see there in verse ten. And they even say why we've sinned. Here's the sin. Not just that generic sin of, I've sinned, please forgive me. But the sin, we've forsaken our God. And we served the bells. We, we've done exactly what we shouldn't do. We left you for other people, for other gods. So the Lord responds to him, verse 11. He said to the people, Did I not save you from the Egyptians when he came out? Yep. What about the Amorites that were defeated by them? Yeah. And the Ammonites and the Philistines. Have I not beaten them in years past? Yes, yes, you have. The Sidonians also? How about the Amalekites? And the Mayanites, they oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I saved you from their hand. Go back through history, people. I've been delivering you for a long time. But now verse 13, yet you have forsaken, and you served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. I'm done. Wouldn't that be your response to? What could I do for you all those years? And look what you did for me. You completely left me. Why in the world would I save you now? You go turn to your other gods, which is what they say verse 14. Go, cry out to the gods in whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. You know what? You wanted them, you go to those gods. You let them take care of you. And I wonder why God says it that way. I wonder if it's because it's an actual test of these people. Because imagine you go to ask someone to do something for you and they say no. And you're like, go over here and let's find out, find another God. But I think what happens is they finally have realized there is no one. And when he says, I'm not going to do it, they recognize we can't do it. They can't do it. Only you can do it. And so they respond back with this, verse 15. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. We've done it. But God, whatever you think is best, that's what needs to be done. We're not asking for much. We just just need to be delivered today don't we as human beings have that short-sightedness? Or I don't care what the consequences are, just deal with me today. But I think that's not their attitude. I think their attitude is like that prodigal son. Remember when he comes back and he is humble for what he did? He says, Father, I am not worthy to be called your son, but make me one of your hired servants. I think what they are admitting in this, we have sinned, you do what is good to us, is God, we understand that we did wrong and we understand that you have to punish us. But we also understand that you're the only one that can deliver us and that's what we're asking for. You do what is in your best interest, but please, God, answer this prayer. And how does God respond to that every time? God responds to that penitent heart with exactly what you would think. So how do we know they were penitent? How do we know they were for real in this and they weren't just putting it on God? Look at verse 15. We said it now beginning of verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. They did what they said they would do. And then here's our statement. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I think there is a chain uh, cause and effect there. I don't think they began to worship Him because He delivered them. I think what the text is saying is they gave up their gods, began to serve Him again, and when they were serving Him, He couldn't stand to see their misery. He was grieved by it. And this word that is translated grieved or impatient I found to be a very interesting word. It is a picture of grain being cut short ready for harvest. It's almost like it was, it was too full. He had dealt with this enough. His anger had been taken fully out and it was time for them to reap the benefits that would come. See, God can't put up with His people having punishment for sin that He has forgiven. It's a difficult thing for Him to watch go on His people. And I look at that and I say, man, that is beautiful that God, He has so much pain when He sees us suffer for doing the right thing. You see that, right, with Jesus. He did please the will of the Lord to crush Him, right? Man, it sure was dark on the earth. There was difficulty being separated. All of those various things that this is impatient. And so, he sends them a deliverer. And his deliverer's name was Jephthah Now here's where the sermon is going to take a little bit of a turn. What we've just seen is God be forgotten and driven away by his people. His people then need him to save him. He's like, why do you need me now? They say, we need you. And God goes and he does that. I'm going to ask the question, because I don't know about this for sure, but does the judge Jephthah illustrate God's situation that is going on right here, right now in Judges chapter 10. I'm leaning towards yes, and I hope that I can make that point clear to you this evening. As we normally think about Jephthah, what do we think about with Jephthah? We think about his, quote, rash vow. You're not going to find anywhere in the text where it uses the word rash. I think we can probably agree that it's a little bit rash, but you're not going to find that description that is given. But he does make a vow. But I want you to notice a few other things about Jephthah as we look. Go to chapter 11. Jephthah was a Gileadite. He was one of those across the river where a lot of the suffering and persecution was going on. He was a mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead's wife, verse 2, also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. And Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and some worthless fellows got around him. What is that all saying? Jephthah belonged, but Jephthah was driven away. He was sent away from his own people, said, You don't belong here with us, You go get out of there. But notice now verse 4. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to him, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Guess what the people need now? We need you, Jephthah. You're a mighty warrior. We need you to deliver us from the Ammonites. And notice Jephthah's response to the elders, verse 7. He said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Sounds kind of like God, right? You went after those other gods. You 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 didn't need me earlier. Why do you need me now? So they have an answer for him, verse 8. They said to Jephthah, That is why we turn to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of all Gilead. Like, we didn't need you then, but we need you now, God. And we're willing to make you, Jephthah, the head of all of us. You can rule over us. And so Jephthah said, man, if you bring me, and notice how he says it, and the Lord gives me, gives them over to me, I will be your head. I'll do this. I'll be your head if the Lord doesn't. In verse 10, the elder said, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you said. you understand what they just said there? Jephthah, if you win, you will be our head. You will be our leader. You see how they didn't need him before, but now they do. And so we know that the victory came to him. Now we get to the part about his vow, right? I want you to go down to the chapter, the end of the chapter. Go down now with me to verse 29. He comes back from this victory and he delivers them. The Lord delivered them from this. So verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah makes this vow. And there's been a lot of speculation about what he thought was going to come out of his house. That's not the point of this. The point of this is Jephthah said, Lord, I will do this if you do that. Did God ever make a vow with His people? I will be your God if you will be my people. He said, if you keep my commandments... I will bless you in the land. If you don't keep my commandments, I will drive you out of the land. But I want you to notice, I want you to hold your finger here in Judges, the 11th chapter. I want you to go with me to Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. I want you to notice this vow that the Lord made with His people. This is through the words of Moses before they take over the land of Canaan. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. And when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, if the good has come or the curse has come, when these things come on you, which I've said before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. You realize what the vow was the Lord said He would do. Even if it's 18 years later, if you come back to Me with your whole heart and you serve Me, I will have compassion on you. Now, we see when He comes back, The vow hurt Jephthah, didn't it? You go back to chapter 11. His daughter comes out. And notice the response that he has. I'm sure that you know it. He comes back and he struck him down. So verse 34, He came to his house and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter you brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Was the Lord hurt in any way when his people abandoned him and he had to still stick to that vow when they came back? I would suggest that he was. I would suggest that he was grieved to his soul. He was in this misery. He couldn't stand the misery anymore. It hurt him. And in all of these different ways, he had made this vow. And notice her response, very similar to the people's response. Verse 36. My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord is avenced you. Basically, she's saying the same thing. Do what seems best to you. You said this is what you were going to do. Father, I expect you to do that. And guess what He does? He does just that. He keeps the vow of His people. He delivers them as we've already seen. And so you would see Jephthah, verse 39, at the end of the two months, she returns to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made, and she never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that they were men for her before that. Again, I I don't know that Jephthah 100% is a shadow of God's love towards His people. But I don't think it's a far stretch. But when you see it like this, how hard it has to be for God to take us back when we have been so cold-hearted and so stubborn and so obstinate. But yet He is a God that says, man, if you come back with all of your heart, I'll take you back. I'll want you back. And I think that's the lesson for us. It hurts God if we ever leave Him. But isn't it great rejoicing over that sinner who repents than the ninety-nine who don't have any need of repentance? Maybe we understand it a little better why there's so much joy, is because it's on the opposite side of all that heartache and sorrow and grief that God is just so glad we came back. So I think the admonition is don't let it take eighteen years. Don't let it take eighteen days. Eighteen minutes maybe max. He'll take you back. Give him our entire heart. God is a good God and great to be praised. God feels it when we leave. If you need the prayers of the congregation here in any way this evening, why don't you come now as we stand and as we sing.